And welcome back. It's Midday. I'm Tom Hall. By the way, coming up on the show tomorrow, it's the Midday News Wrap, the year-end edition. My colleagues from the WIPR News team will share the most important and impactful stories that they've covered this year. Plus, theater critic Jay Wynn Russick will review Dial M for Murder. That's the thriller at the Everyman Theater in Baltimore. A recent survey commissioned by Live Baltimore explores the reasons people choose to call Charm City home. The simple answer is, well, people like it here. They work here. They have friends here. They grew up here. But as popular as Baltimore may be with the residents who were asked about Baltimore in this survey, there is no doubt that our city faces a continuing population decline. The decline started seven decades ago, and the reasons for it are varied. The tax rate in our city is the highest in the state. That's a problem for homeowners, but ironically, can actually be a plus for first-time buyers. Violent crime spiked in the last several years, although it's trending down this year, and schools matter a lot to young parents. So what does the data show about how important those factors are as people decide where to live? We'll talk about the reasons people leave the city and what it'll take to entice them to stay. My next guest is Annie Milley, the executive director of Live Baltimore. We'll talk about the data about who's leaving and who's staying in our city and why they are making the decisions that they're making about where to live. And you are welcome to join us. 410-662-8780 or email midday at WIPR.org. Hey, Annie, good to see you. Happy holidays. Hey, I'm so glad to be here. I've always wanted to do this show. Well, I'm glad you're you're finally doing it. That's great. Mm-hmm. Um, so you all commissioned a survey. Uh, Malia Cromer from the Goucher College uh, Public Policy Institute, the Hughes Public Policy, has a, has a, a, a solo gig, too, uh, uh, and she did it under those auspices. Um, what did you find? Well, this was the second time that we've worked with Malia to conduct a survey of recent Baltimore City homebuyers. And the first was done with homebuyers before the pandemic, and then the second one was done uh, since the pandemic, and we wanted to see if there were any changes. And we found there were not as many changes as we might have expected in why people were choosing to be here. And much of what you said in the introduction is what we found to be true. People choose Baltimore because they work here or they work nearby. They choose Baltimore because they like the walkability of our communities, our unique architecture. Uh, Affordability of our neighborhoods is huge. Uh, And they just like it here. They, when we get to meet people at Live Baltimore who are excited to move here every day, so I can certainly attest to all of those reasons. But you also have looked into the reasons that people are leaving, and they've been leaving for a long time. Sometimes they leave uh, in huge, you know, massive numbers in the 1970s to 80s. We lost more than 118,000 people, uh, and between 1990 and 2000, we lost nearly 85,000. People. It's a lot of people all at once. It's leveled off a little bit, but still the, the trend is down. So what do we know? What, what does the data tell us about why people leave, why people stay, uh, and, and then obviously how can that inform what we want to do to build up the tax base and build up the population? Absolutely. Well, this is my uh, favorite topic to discuss and to share information about because there's a lot of, I think, misinformation and misunderstanding about the city's population loss. So I'm going to start way back before 1950. We In 1950, that was actually our peak population. Many people think we once had over a million people. We never quite got to a million. We had 950,000 people in 1950. And there were some things that happened in the United States and in Baltimore before 1950 that really set us up for the course that we still find 
find ourselves on. So the first thing is in 1938, there was the uh, Hulk redlining map. So many people are aware that Baltimore was the birthplace of redlining. So this was um, the, the Federal Home Loan Corporation decided where people could and couldn't get mortgages. And that started in 1938. That, that was one of the things that sort of set the course for our population. Um, the next thing that happened in 1944, the GI Bill happened, and that was um, a, a way for World, World, World War II veterans to get low-cost mortgages. Um, unfortunately, that ended up excluding about 1.2 million uh, black veterans. So it was a way for um, essentially white veterans to move into new housing that was being developed and to get inexpensive home loans there. So that was another thing that happened. And then in 1948, there was a major thing that happened, which was um, there was a a state constitutional initiative that uh, really set the city's boundaries. So we became a city that could no longer expand. We couldn't take on any more land. And so those things are really important because uh, what starts to change in 1950 is we start to see a dramatic decline in the United States household size. We start having fewer children. And so what happened in cities all across the United States is that starting in 1950, we have this declining household size, and therefore all cities started to see their populations decline. Um, So being a shrinking city at that time, it, it wasn't unusual. Um, and did they also yeah. did that start the uh, migration to the suburbs? I mean, because I've always heard that you know during the Eisenhower administration, for example, when all these highways were built, that was the ticket out, literally uh, the pathway out of the city into suburban areas. Right. So what you see is you see cities across the country, their populations start to decline. But the way that other cities um, really got themselves back into balance and got themselves growing again is through development, through housing development. And that housing development was taking place in areas where there was still available land. Now, what's different for Baltimore is that, like I said, we didn't have any. We didn't have any more available land and our boundaries had been set. And so you start to see all of the growth starts to occur in our surrounding counties where there was areas to develop. So from 1950 to 1970, we're still developing housing in the city of Baltimore. And so even though you're seeing a numerical decline in population, you're seeing actually growth in the number of the city's households. So we're, we're adding um, more housing units. We're adding more families, you could say, in the city, but those are smaller families. And we're still seeing um, uh, some growth. You don't start to see vacant housing emerge until the 1970s, like you said, when for the first time we started to see a decline in our population and a decline in the number of households. And that's the thing that you don't want to see. If both of those things are going down, that's when you really start to have a problem. That's interesting. Just make sure folks understand that. Uh, Before the 1970s, the number of households actually grew. Yes. But each one of those households was smaller than it had been in the 40s and 50s. Therefore, the population itself declined. But then in the 70s, not only the number of households went down uh, along with the, the number of people uh, in the household. So that's when the population really started tanking. That's when you really start to see a major, major change. And like you said, what's also happening at this time, and that's why I really wanted to start back in 1938 and, and think about mortgages and think about the GI Bill and think about the boundaries of the city, because all of those things really set up the conditions for growth in all of our surrounding counties and for our city to decline. Um, because because you had all kinds of, of 
people who were taking part in policies and in systems that they didn't really understand that they were a part of. So all of the white flight that you hear about as driving population loss, that had a lot to do with the GI Bill. That had a lot to do with suburbanization and development and federally subsidized development that was taking place in our surrounding counties. Um, certainly not everybody who moved from Baltimore City to Baltimore County um, was was doing so out of racism. I mean, that's absolutely inaccurate to say, right? Um, but they were a part of a system that had embedded in it a number of racist policies, like the redlining map, like the GI Bill, um, that excluded black veterans. And, and so there it's was a, a concerted effort uh, on the part of uh, many in the real estate industry to, in fact, uh, inflame the fears of, uh, you know, black families taking over neighborhoods, and you know they were selling houses cheapo, cheapo, and then you know you, they were saying, "Oh, you better get out now uh, if you're a white family because this neighborhood's going to become black pretty soon." Uh, and that did happen a lot, right? Yeah. In addition to redlining. Right. You know. And that was a phenomenon called blockbusting. And I actually think that we can attribute more of our population decline and more of our vacant housing to blockbusting than we can to redlining. Um, because it's very interesting if you look at a, a 1938 redlining map, um, you'll see that about 50% of the neighborhoods that were redlined in that map um, have continued to decline and have seen the most decline in our city. But 50% have actually seen the most growth in our city. So a lot of the waterfront communities were redlined lined along with the communities in West Baltimore, um, but they've gone on different paths. And so what are some of the other reasons for that? And uh, in the, 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 the history of this thing, mm -hmm. um, uh, you have a chart in one of your uh, publications uh, about how the population of the region has changed. Every other jurisdiction, Anne Arundel County, Howard County, Harford County, Carroll County, Baltimore County has grown mm -hmm. since 1950s. Baltimore is the only one that hasn't. I mean, so there is, there is a singular distinction in the city of Baltimore. Everybody else has experienced growth. It's not like the state of Maryland is losing people, but they're but the city of Baltimore is losing them. They're hemorrhaging people. So that's true. And I would go back to what I was saying about development. So housing development really drives population and drives migration. And I know that's some of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but when you think about all of our surrounding counties, I grew up in Baltimore County. Um, and I remember Baltimore <laughs> County being uh, being rural. <laughs> I mean, I remember, uh, you know, it was cornfields. Um, and, and all of that land uh, from the 80s on was developed into housing and developed into townhome communities. And so, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of households were added in our surrounding counties as there was housing development taking place. And what we know about housing consumers, when you're thinking about population, you're thinking about migration, you're really talking about housing consumers. What we know about housing consumers is that in the United States, um, new construction can really drive housing consumers' decision-making. And so when we had all of these surrounding counties that were offering all of this new construction housing, when the only way that you could learn about real estate was in the Sunday Sun paper real estate section, and every single ad was for new construction in our surrounding counties, yeah, it drove a lot of migration. And you make the argument that if we had more new construction of housing here in the city, that would attract people back, which is interesting because we, we say, oh, we have all these vacant houses. We have 13,000, 17,000, whatever number uh, various people put on it. Um, we have too much housing mm -hmm. because we have you know fewer people. We have 585,000 people now. We don't have 900 and 
50,000 people like we had in the 1950s. Therefore, we have this excess. We have a surplus of housing. But you're saying we need to build more, and it's kind of a chicken in the egg. If we build the housing, uh, the data shows you people would come back. Yes, and this is one of the hardest uh, things to grasp about population change in Baltimore and housing in Baltimore, because everything you just said, it makes perfect sense, right? Like, if I'm just a regular person and I hear that there's all of this vacant housing, I'm going to think, oh, there's too much housing. But that's not really the way that we need to think about housing when we're thinking about our opportunity to grow. if not everybody who's listening has maybe seen the state of some of the vacant housing in our city, but that is not housing that someone could move into tomorrow. And over time, as our neighborhoods with high levels of vacant housing have deteriorated, those communities have become less desirable places for people to live. So I like to try and explain, it's it's not that people don't want to live in Baltimore City. People want to live in Baltimore City. There is a tremendous market for housing in the metropolitan region and for the city. But people don't want to renovate vacant houses themselves. Um, they don't want to live on blocks with other vacant houses. And so there is, there's a mismatch between the supply and demand. One of the most important things that we've done in recent years at Live Baltimore is in 2020, we commissioned uh, the first ever citywide study of residential market demand. And what that study did was it looked at what is the total audience size of housing consumers in the region? How many people are shopping for housing? What do those people look like? Who are those people? And what are those people shopping for? What kinds of housing are they looking for? What kinds of housing can they afford? And, and this is the rental market and the purchase market. The rental market and the purchase market. And that study gave us a tremendous amount of insight into how we could strategically grow the city's population through a housing development strategy that's matched to what the market is looking for in terms of housing. And what they're looking for is new housing, as you're saying. I mean, a good a good proportion of those people want something brand new. A good portion of people want something brand new. So if you think about it, um, there is a segment, I like to use the analogy of cars, because there is a certain uh, segment of the population that will not buy a used car. They just always want a new car. They're only going to shop for something new. And interestingly enough, that is the same phenomenon that we find with housing. And our researchers tell us that in the for sale market, somewhere around 75 to 10% of all of the people who are shopping to purchase a home are only looking to purchase a brand new home. And in the rental market, that's closer to 20% of people who are shopping for an apartment. They're only shopping for the newest thing on the market. So whereas in the past number of decades, all of that new housing has been available really exclusively in our surrounding counties. We now have an opportunity now, as those counties have become pretty much built out, to look at our land, to look at our city, and to think, how can we put more new construction housing to attract this portion of the market that is exclusively shopping for it? But that's interesting because it sounds like you're, you're adjusting the strategy to just 20% of the market or 10% of the market for the people looking to buy. So what about the 80%? I mean, wouldn't a a public policy approach to this or a a general policy approach, you know, want to cater to the 80% rather than the 20%? I'm not saying that what you're telling me is wrong, Mm -hmm. but it's not the majority. I mean, so obviously neighborhoods like Bolton Hill 
uh, aren't going to see this big uh, influx of people because all those houses were built in the 19th century. Uh, or Reservoir Hill, where I live, you know, on, on our street, all those, you know, not one of them was built before 1900. Um, so the, the areas that have new housing would be attractive to 20% of the market. What about the, the, the majority, the, the remainder? Well, if, in Reservoir Hill, I would say there's actually a lot of new construction housing that's coming to the former Madison Park development. There's going to be a, a large group right. of new construction townhomes coming there. And that is going to be good for the existing housing stock in Reservoir Hill. Um, what we know from national researchers who study this kind of thing is that um, really growth begets growth. So when you have something that is newly built, you see people moving into that new construction housing. That actually supports the stability of the housing markets around it. I should also say that when we think about new housing with in terms of Baltimore, um, we think about significant renovation. So taking an, a house in Bolton Hill or in Reservoir Hill and, and doing a gut renovation of that house and making it essentially a new house, that counts in this, in this um, subset of people who are shopping. So it's, it should be a both-and approach. It has to be a both-and approach. I'm not saying that uh, we should exclusively care about people who are shopping for new housing. But what we know is that there's about 44,000 households per year looking for to make a housing choice in our metro region. If we want to grow, we have to capture the largest share possible of that market. And that means that we have to think about all kinds of shoppers. I would also say that we need to retain residents who are already here in Baltimore. And a portion of the residents who are already here in Baltimore are also those residents who are exclusively shopping for new housing. So we need to give people who are already here what they're looking for if we want to keep them. And we also need to build what people who are shopping in the region are looking for if we yeah. want them to come in. Yeah, some of your data shows that more than half of the people looking for housing in Baltimore already live here. So they're not coming from Baltimore County or Harford County or Pennsylvania or New Jersey. I mean, they're, they're, they're already here. They're just looking for something different. They're already here, yes. What we know about— But that doesn't grow the population. It's just the, the population stays stable that way. Well, retention is an important part of growth. Retention is absolutely mm. an important part of growth. And so one of the things that we think about a lot, because at Live Baltimore, we focus on home ownership in a lot of our programming, um, home ownership is a retention strategy. So we do need to keep people in order to reduce the churn in our housing market so that there is room for, for new housing and for renovated housing to be absorbed, right? So that's really important. Um, but yes, housing markets are primarily local. Um, the majority of the market for housing in Baltimore is either already in Baltimore or in one of our surrounding counties. About 20% of the market that could move into Baltimore City is in the balance of the United States. So we have a huge proportion of our market for housing already here within the city or within the region. Some 30 million people moved around the country uh, between 2019 and 2020. So it ain't that the people aren't moving. There's a lot of migration going on. It's interesting that 85 percent, according to some of your data, have stayed in their home state wherever they wherever they grew up. 60 percent of young adults live within 10 miles of their, their childhood home. So there, people don't want to wander too far. Uh, people always imagine that, uh, yes, I get a lot of questions about uh, can we grow our city's population by 
just targeting San Francisco or just targeting some other area of the country. That's not really how migration works. Um, Yes, we could get some people to move here. I think especially remote work has given an opportunity for us to attract people from places that we never could before. Um, But like you just shared, housing markets are primarily local. Americans, although they move about 12 times on average in their lifetime, they tend to stay close to home. Um, You said 60% of young adults live within 10 miles of where they grew up. 80% of young adults live within 100 miles of where they grew up. So people tend to stay put. And the reasons that people relocate um, are primarily when it comes to a job or a major change in in their household, like getting married or getting divorced or something like that. And and other than those things, housing is the driver of people's decisions to move. And it's it's against conventional wisdom, but that is what all of the data tells us. All right. And listeners, don't relocate where you're living right now on the radio. My guest is Executive Director of Live Baltimore, Annie Million. We'll have more with Annie, and we'll take more questions and comments from you guys. After a quick break, you can join us at 410-662-8780. You can email us midday at wypr.org. What's the key to making the population of Baltimore reverse the trend of decline and get into the growth phase. Let us know after this quick break. I'm Tom Hall. Stay with us. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR. And welcome back. It's midday. I'm Tom Hall. If you've just joined us, my guest is Annie Milley, the executive director of Live Baltimore. We're talking about how to reverse the population decline that our city has experienced for the past 70 years. An analysis of Baltimore's market potential found that nearly 63% of Baltimore residents are young, single, and childless. 21% of households are traditional and non-traditional families, and about 16% of city residents are empty nesters and retirees. So there's a trend in some places for older people to leave the suburbs and move to cities for proximity to where they want to be. Can Baltimore accommodate the needs of both younger and older people simultaneously? And if you live in the city, what do you think about it? What do you like most about it? If you choose not to live in the city, why not? Give us a call, 410-662-8780, or email midday at WIPR. So, Annie, we have tons of comments here on email. David says uh, he has complaints about public services. Uh, People who come here new uh, take a while to realize how bad things are. I've attempted to resolve issues using 311 or calling departments directly or contacting the mayor uh, and to no avail. Donna has an exactly opposite view. She says, I moved here from New York City years ago because I could afford a townhouse in Charles Village. It was one of the best decisions I've ever made. Stacy says, I moved to Baltimore last year and I love it. What can residents do to help bring more people to Baltimore? Are there any efforts to try to bring more refugees to resettle here in the U.S.? Um, so let's talk about that. Uh, one, of the, one of the data points that you all uh, glob onto is the fact that people like their neighbors. Mm-hmm. If they like their neighbors and the people they're living around, they're going to like their house. They're going to like where they are. If they don't like the neighbors, not so much. So neighborliness and friendliness and 
communication with people who live near you really matters a lot. It does. Community is one of the the main factors that people really appreciate and love about Baltimore City. You'll often hear people talk about the best thing about Baltimore is its people. And I think that's absolutely true. And I think many other residents uh, would say the same. But it is important, that connection to community. Um, there's all kinds of social science research about loose ties and how they bind us together when we all go to the same coffee shop or we go to the same grocery store. Um, those things matter. So that's definitely something that's important important, um, you know, other things that are important. But, you know, yeah. too, I'm sorry, me, yeah. sorry to interrupt, but, but Baltimore's not unique in that way. No. I mean, I, I moved seven times before I went to college. Mm-hmm. I lived all over the country. I've moved four times since I've been here in Baltimore uh, for the last 42 years. And uh, it's no different in Pittsburgh and Dallas and Phoenix and Detroit. I mean, it's it, people like the people they live around. So I don't think, I mean, Baltimore has quirky people, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, that's not causing people to leave or to stay, is it? I mean, is, is it? I mean, they may leave their neighborhood if they live next door to a, you know, rowdy, noisy, horrible human being. They may say, oh, this stinks and I'll I'll move somewhere else. But they're not going to move to Austin just because of that, right? No, connection to community is is certainly, it's a supporting factor. Uh, I think when you're comparing any urban area, I mean, as you just said, it's not unique to Baltimore, but it is somewhat of an urban phenomenon to have this community organizing that occurs. Uh, When I was chairing the um, Middle Neighborhoods Work, group for the mayor's office a number of years ago. We we did a, an analysis and we looked at, well, there's 279 neighborhoods in Baltimore City. That's a fun fact for anybody who's listening. There's 279 um, official neighborhoods in the city. And at the time that we were working on this middle neighborhoods project, um, there were over 800 registered community groups for those 279 neighborhoods. So there is an organization of neighbors that is is an urban phenomenon that I think you would find within Baltimore City that you may not find um, in our surrounding counties. There is a tendency to know your neighbors uh, because we're living in denser areas um, and we might be coming together to talk about some of the um, good or bad things that are going on in our communities. Just really quickly, what about this idea of refugees. I mean, I know uh, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, when she was the mayor 10 years ago, came up with a plan to have 10,000 new families move to Baltimore, and immigrants were a big part of that plan. There are refugees uh, being, you know, bussed from Texas and Florida all over the place. Uh, is that is that something that, uh, that Baltimore could could get, welcome those people here, uh, let them set up. I mean, people who have gone through the trauma of leaving, uh, you know, oppressive places where they where they were born uh, certainly are risk takers. They are, uh, you, you know, they're, they're, they're motivated. Well, I'm not an expert in refugee placement placements, but I know enough to be dangerous. So I can share that, um, you know, it's certainly immigration uh, is an important part of population change. One of the things that was challenging about uh, the years during the Trump administration, we saw really immigration uh, shut down. And so we did not see uh, the influx of new Americans into Baltimore that we had been seeing previously. And so that was certainly something that was disappointing to all of us. 
Um, we have seen the, for example, the Hispanic population is growing in Baltimore City. We saw that population grow from 4% of the population in 2010 to 8% of the population in 2020. So that's, and our Asian population growing as well. So that's definitely an area of opportunity. When it comes to uh, refugee placements, um, there are assignments in terms of the numbers of refugees that are placed in different parts of the United States um, that are uh, that happen at the federal level. And then we have placement agencies. Um, so uh, like, like LURS is one of them, um, Lutheran, I'm going to get the acronym wrong, but the um, Lutheran Immigration Refugee Service uh, is, is actually located here in Baltimore. They don't place as many people in Baltimore as you would imagine being a Baltimore-based relocation agency. Um, but interestingly, that has to do with federal assignment uh, of placements. And then also housing stock. It all goes back to housing stock. Um, many of the refugee families that come into the United States have very large families. And there are requirements when you're placing families about um, how many bedrooms are necessary and mm-hmm. all of that. So it's a wonky thing. But it's important. It's an uh, important part of our, our potential growth. Yeah, I think you're referring to Chris Vignaraj's yes. thing, a Lutheran Immigration, Immigration. and Refugee yes. Service. Thank yeah. you for doing a better job yeah. with no, that. No, no problem. Let's go to Janet on the phone. We have a number of callers so callers, let me ask you to be brief and uh, pose your question for Annie Milley. Janie, uh, Janet, rather, welcome to the show. Thanks for calling. Hi, thanks for taking my call. One of the things I, I want to let the, um, let the woman know that's on your show today is that I agree we do need to do more um, new housing. And the other thing, along with that, do a mass appeal. I mean, a strong mass appeal. To middle class, and and I'm going to dare to say upper middle class. That might not be sound very PC, but we have to get a good tax base here, and we have to get people that want to come here and send their children to school, be good citizens. But that's that's my opinion. Okay, thanks for the call, Janet. Um, how big uh, an impact does the tax rate in the city of Baltimore have when it comes to population decline? Are people leaving because it's just too darn expensive? So we definitely hear a lot of talk in the news about the tax rate, um, and, and tax rate does come up. I will say it makes less of a difference in people's individual housing decisions than you might imagine. And that is primarily because people tend to think of housing costs in terms of monthly payments. Um, so there's a total cost of housing effect that, that really motivates people. So yes, when you hear the tax tax rate, especially if you're local, that tax rate does sound high. Um, Interestingly enough, people who are relocating from other cities think we have a low tax rate here. So there's many other urban areas across the country that have higher tax rates. And you've said that, ironically, a new first-time buyer Mm -hmm. actually benefits from the tax rate because the tax rates are keeping property values depressed. Is that right? Right. So there is... That's a kind of a funky way of looking at it. It's a funky way of looking (laughs) at it, but but it's, it's actually true. Because of this sort of total cost of housing monthly payment calculation in terms of what can people afford and what are people willing to pay for housing, with a higher uh, property tax rate, the cost of entry, the, the, uh, the cost of our homes is lower 
in many cases than in our surrounding counties. And so therefore, when you calculate a monthly mortgage payment, you take the property taxes, you take the cost of the home and all of the other things into account, um, your cost of housing is oftentimes still lower than in our surrounding counties. And so um, for in terms of an entry point market, we are the first time home buyer market in the region. Um, we are the most affordable jurisdiction in terms of um, the median price of housing in the region. And so, um, yes, that is important in terms of some people would argue it's actually it's good. I'm not going to take a side on that. Um, but it, it is it is a, an economic factor that people are very interested in. <laughs> it'd, be a fun, it'd be a fun position to take that high taxes are good. I have uh, board <laughs> members who take both positions. Yeah, interesting. Yes, yes. Let's go to Doug. He's on the line in Roland Park. Welcome to the show with Annie Milley. Hi, I'm, I'm glad you guys are talking about this topic. And uh, just a couple of of interesting anecdotes. So O'Donnell Square was a project on an old industrial site in the um, Freetown area of town. And uh, when Ryan was building it, they had said that it was the fastest selling project that they had in the state at the time. And to the point that um, Annie was making earlier, I think folks wanted a modern townhouse with a layout and a garage and all those sorts of things. So I, I do think that we have great historic properties, and, and I love my historic house, but it's not for everybody. And and to your point, Tom, about it's only 20%, well, 20% is a lot of folks. Yeah, and, it is. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, it's Southeast Baltimore, I would say, is really a, a poster child for what I'm talking about with housing driving moves. If you're familiar with Southeast Baltimore and that O'Donnell project, I don't think anybody would have believed that that project would have sold as well as it did. It literally has a scrap metal yard against the backside of that property. And those houses sold so fast. Housing drives consumer demand. Yeah, People walk into again. a house, this, this they love the house, yeah, right? Yeah. And they, they love the house. They love being near a highway. Um, they see the Canton Crossing Shopping Center and all of the amenities that are there. And, and they, they go, this look, is a bargain. And they just don't look out the back window. Yeah. Apparently so, right? <laughs> and I and so similarly, you know, I live in a, in a, a 1928 historic home. I've restored that home. But that's not for everyone. And I, it's my job to grow the city and to attract as many people here as possible. So what I want is not important. What I personally want does not matter. Sure. What matters is what this larger consumer market wants. Let's try to sneak in one more call if we can. Let's go to Tom, our good friend in Mount Vernon. Welcome to the show. Happy holidays. Well, happy holidays to you guys. And, and uh, to Tom and Ms. Annie, uh, I'd like to say earlier in the show you mentioned, Tom, that during the 70s and 80s, there was over 100,000 people left the city of Baltimore. Also, in the 70s and 80s was when the, the vacant housing problem skyrocketed. And there's one other thing that happened, which was deindustrialization and the loss of factory jobs. Sure. Best Many of the vacant houses are located in former work or working class neighborhoods, black neighborhoods. And does your guest see a connection? Yeah, good question, Tom. Oh, Thank absolutely. You. Yeah, loss of industrial jobs is one of the primary drivers of population loss. I, I literally teach a class in population loss every other month, and uh, and that is one of the primary factors. So that was another thing that was really important, right? We had the closure of Bethlehem Steel. We had a lot of jobs um, that went away. And as I shared earlier, um, people move because of work. And so it, it was definitely a factor. In terms of public policy, as we finish up, mm -hmm. um, uh, your report says that 26,500 households could be added in the city of Baltimore, but it would require subsidies for rents 
and purchase. So what's the role of the government? We have BUILD and other organizations, uh, you know, supporting billions of dollars in uh, renovation uh, funds and, and subsidies and stuff. As a as a reasonable practical matter, what what's it going to take? Well, the twenty six thousand five hundred number is is simply the number of households that we that our, our researchers say we could add over a period of five years through the development of new construction, newly constructed housing. So that's not necessarily housing that would require subsidy. Um, there there may be some there's a mix of incomes of people who would be coming in and looking for that housing. So there would need to be a mix. There would need to be some market rate housing. There would need to be some um, permanently affordable housing. But that's not necessarily saying that um, the government needs to subsidize the construction of that housing. What I think is most important that we look at and do is we follow up on the market study that has now been completed that says this is who's looking for housing. This is the kind of housing that they're looking for. And we start to ask ourselves questions like, okay, we need to add X number of single detached houses. Where in the city of Baltimore could those houses be built? We should engage in a planning process where we look at the available land and where we imagine where that housing could be put so that we could welcome all of those new residents. All right. Well, we will make sure you come back and uh, keep us informed on this. We will uh, stay in touch and talk about it. It's a central, central issue, uh, and I hope it becomes a central issue in the campaign uh, as that kicks up uh, after the first of the year. So thank you, Annie. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Glad to talk about it. Annie Milley is the executive director of Live Baltimore. That's it for us today. Coming up tomorrow, members of the W. YPR News Team. Join me for our final news wrap of the year. We'll talk about the year's biggest stories. And coming up now, it's Here and Now. I'm Tom Hall. I really appreciate your being with us today for Midday. Thanks so much. Have a great day. This is Baltimore's NPR News Station, 88.1 WYPR.